December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. The figure. I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The drama. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know deep whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. In today's show, we're going to interview a historian who had a profound effect on what I do on this program. Those of you who've listened to Hardcore History for any period of time know that what we sometimes try to do is to put you in the shoes of people who lived in the past. Give you an idea of what it was like to fight in an ancient battle or be in a city that was in the process of being sacked. Things like that. I get lots of emails from people who say, wow, you really brought that home in an emotional, human way to me. And that's when we feel like we've done a good job on those occasions when we can do that. But I want you all to know that the historian we're going to talk to today has a huge piece of responsibility in making me understand history that way. You see, until about the middle 1970s, I think it was like 1976, Historians tended not to focus too much on what the experience of human beings was like in battle, especially battle from ancient times. First of all, it's a hard thing to do, right? In the 1970s, a British historian, a guy you may have heard of named John Keegan, wrote a groundbreaking book called The Face of Battle. And The Face of Battle was one of these really early attempts to try to see ancient or medieval or early battle from the viewpoint of the people who happened to be fighting it. Now, I have to be honest with you here and say that while John Keegan is a huge force in military history, he's never quite grabbed me. Maybe it's a personal thing. I've just never been touched by the way Keegan approaches subjects. However, Victor Davis Hanson has touched me that way. And when his groundbreaking book, I think it was 1989, came out, The Western Way of War, explaining what hoplite battle was like in ancient Greek times for the hoplites fighting it, well... Let's just say I had been trying for many years before that to picture what it must have been like. Hansen's book was a revelation to me. And for those of you who think that, at times, we're capable of putting you in the shoes of the people who were taking part in historical events, well, I need to credit Victor Davis Hansen with helping me to understand what that was like. Now, let me say before we start this interview that we've been lucky enough to not just have Victor Davis Hanson, but another interview coming up, if it doesn't fall through, with another historian. We have to take these interviews when they arrive. So just for scheduling purposes, this Hardcore History show will be an interview show, just like the one we did with James Burke. We have three kinds of shows at the moment that we do. 
the regular narrative shows that you're used to. The Blitz shows, we've done one of those, and that's a little bit different than the normal shows. And these interview programs with, um, you know, prominent historians. The good news about the interview shows is we can certainly churn them out faster than the long-form shows, so you ought to be getting these a little bit sooner than you're used to. In any case, Victor Davis Hanson, uh, this show, another interview the next show, what we assume will be a Blitz show after that, and what we assume will be a normal Hardcore History show after that. So that's the you know, upcoming schedule as we see it right now. Victor Davis Hanson, by the way, just so you know, a professor of classics originally, and you all know what the classics are, right? The Greek and Roman writings that were so much a part of what we call today the classical liberal education. What people, you know, 80 years ago were expected to know when they got out of college. All the writings of the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks and, well, the classics. That's where Victor Davis Hansen's roots lie. And that's where we'll start our conversation with him. And just as a little aside here, I should point out that there are places in this interview where there are some digital dropouts and things that we are not normally used to dealing with in our interviews. Our Skype connection let us down for some reason. And uh, right after the interview, we went out and bit the bullet and spent a bunch of money on a very professional interview system so that this will never happen again. Unfortunately, it does happen a few times in this program. Our apologies to our guest. And if he ever comes on the show again, it won't happen next time. In any case... Without further ado, Victor Davis Hanson. With me right now, um, one of my favorite historians, Victor Davis Hanson. He's the author of about a million books. He's a Stanford Hoover Institution professor, professor emeritus at California State University. He taught at the Naval Academy at Annapolis. And I started reading him when he came out with the most interesting book on ancient warfare I ever read called The Western Way of war. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Sure, absolutely. And there's a little delay here, so I apologize for any talking over. Um, I remember reading a book you uh, you co-authored called Who Killed Homer? about the death of classical education. And I wondered if you could explain to folks maybe what a classical liberal education used to mean in terms of what your average student would graduate college knowing from the text of the ancient world and whatnot, and what maybe we lose as a society because we don't know those texts as well as we used to know them. Well, classical education was based on two premises. One, that you would think inductively, that is, you would look at what the Greeks called symptoms, and then you would make a diagnosis, and then you would offer a prognosis. You wouldn't be deductive. You wouldn't have preconceived superstition or preconceived ideas that you would make them fit the world around you. And then second, you had to have a body of knowledge that you could draw on for that induction. And that meant you had to have literature, philosophy, rhetoric, science, mathematics. There were only about 10 or 15 disciplines. And so education became really the ability to make chaos, make sense of the chaos in the present with the wisdom of the past. And when we lost that approach and we started to append the word studies on every course, environmental studies, leisure studies, peace studies, African-American studies, women's studies, um, we sort of began to think deductively. All of those classes have the premise that something's wrong, usually, uh, to be frank, white, male, Christian, heterosexual men with power did something to the environment or did something to cause war or did something to people of color or did something to colonial peoples. And then they made the facts fit. And the problem 
with the second half of that statement is, what were the facts? If you are not studying history or you're not studying literature, that you're studying how these things prove a point, you don't really learn about names and dates and people and friends. And so we got it on both ends. In other words, we've created a therapeutic in which the average undergraduate is not given the skills, the inductive method of reasoning, and two, is not given the body of knowledge to draw upon to use that inductive way of thinking. The result is by almost any measure that we apply, whether it's test scores or um, uniform tests or just the general sense that people know something about their past or their culture or their values, we're found wanting. And, and I think we're starting to see the symptoms of that from the profound that people aren't able to uh, grasp basic thoughts about their culture or why the United States is exceptional and different than other countries to the mundane when you go into the Department of Motor Vehicles or you get something in the, a statement from a government agency, the chances are there's going to be a mistake in it because you don't have people who, who share basic liter literacy and they're not competent to read and digest materials in a complex society and we're starting to see it on both ends of the spectrum. Now, how would reading something, and you may have to help me with, with what you would consider to be maybe the five or four or three or whatever, the core classical texts, how would, how would reading Plato's The Republic or, or reading Polybius or some Tacitus, how would that help a modern-day person? Well, you see, unlike a lot of modern literature, we're not talking about Tom Clancy or Anne Rice, the Sophocles Antigone or Plato's Republic, or Aeschylus' Oresteia, or Thucydides' history, they deal not just with describing something like the Peloponnesian War or utopia that you might mean want one to live in, but they come to grips with key ideas. And there's 10 or 12 key ideas that people need to discuss. And one of them, of course, is how do you organize society? Should you have an oligarchy of an elite, or should you turn it over to a mass of the average person? Should you have a state control of the economy, or should you encourage a free market economy? Should you um, wire some women who are competent, not given the same opportunities as Sophocles says in the Antigone, or Aristophanes says in Lysistrata, as men? So they, discuss, they look at prejudices or preconceived ideas about gender and race and class as well. And also they talk about human nature itself, that Human nature is pretty disturbing that sometimes when we're nice to people, rather than appreciating it, they think we're weak or that uh, they're, they're patsies and they owe us more. Or when two nations are uh, in rivalry, one nation that seems to want peace at all costs lends itself not utopian and not pacifistic, but weak and vulnerable. And so most of the key questions about the human experience are, are discussed by the Greeks in a way that we don't do that with American literature anymore. Well, it's interesting, too, because I'm just an amateur. I was just a standard Bachelor of Arts history major. But I find more and more I'm um, appalled is maybe too strong a word. But when I, I listen to the historical educators talk amongst themselves, I hear more and more 
that some of the basic maybe false assumptions that people like I have about history, you know, the old Santa Ana line that, you know, those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, these basic things that people like yours truly take for granted, more and more I'm hearing the professional historians say that, eh, history is not predictive, um, you know, that it can't really be used to help us out in the future and whatnot. Do you do you buy into that line of thinking? And, and tell me where I'm wrong when I think that, you know, human nature hasn't changed that much. So maybe those texts from the old days still have a real value to us. Well, the whole argument about the utility of history is based on one premise. Either you believe, like Thucydides, the historian of the 5th century, that human nature is constant and unchanging, or you believe that some modernists do, that perhaps with increased education or better diet or video games that our, our brain chemistry has been altered. And we as humans then don't have the same impulses as we always used to. I think the latter is pretty easily fallacious, that human nature tends to be self-centered, tends to be greedy, it tends to be sometimes violent. And the way that uh, history has shown us that behavior is modified in a socially beneficial way is that you have a constitutional government, you have rights and regulations that protect the independent and the minority view, you have military preparedness and deterrence to protect your state from inevitable risk and hostile belligerence. And if you believe that, then you can find all sorts of, uh, as I said, utility and reassurance in history. But if you believe that suddenly the rules are no longer applied to you, that in our generation Peace studies replaces military history or psychology and therapy replace the tragic view of human experience. And people believe history is of no value because we're sort of breaking new ground as we go. But the older I get, it seems to me that people act in predictable fashion and they they react predictably to stimuli. And they're no different today than they were in the 5th century. It's sort of like envisioning a pump Pumps of the 19th century delivered water at, say, three gallons a minute. A pump today at 1,000 gallons a minute. But nobody would believe that water, its essence, has changed just because the delivery system of technology has allowed us much more water per second. That's sort of what human experience is. It's faster now. It's uh, interconnected globally. It's electronic. But it hasn't changed its essence. You brought up a, a couple of little points that seem to indicate that the past still has relevancy, as I was mentioning to you a second ago, for the now. And I notice, I don't know if it's maybe I'm getting older, so I notice it more and more, but a lot of my favorite historians are more involved in discussing current events and things like government policy and programs and, and directions than I remember in the old days, everyone from, say, a Howard Zinn on the left to more of a, of a Niall Ferguson on the right, or even a Victor Davis Hanson. What do you think the responsibility of a historian is to the now or to the future? Well, I always thought that history had a utility, so the historian, if he does not want to end up as a scoliast or a pedant, then at some point, no matter how narrow his original interests were, he has to just imagine how his, uh, if he's working on coinage of 5th century Argos, or he's working about the 17th century Venetian banking system, at some point he has to do two things, I think. And one is, how does my narrow splice or my narrow level of expertise uh, enrich a larger view of the Mediterranean or the ancient Greece or whatever period he's working at? 
and how does that help me understand the present? And some people can do that more effectively than others. We can have people who are better specialists and generalists than people who can relate ancient and modern, but it seems to me that all historians should at least, at some point in their career, entertain ideas about uh, how the past can make sense from the present. We won't agree on it, as you said. Most people won't have the same view of how history teaches us anything about the present. But I think that's, it's valuable to speculate. Now, I'm curious. One of the things that I know fascinates a lot of the listeners, and I'm, I'm completely obsessed with this idea, that do we know what we think we know about the past? For example, I just finished some stuff on, um, on the Punic Wars, and it always strikes me how much that narrative relies on Polybius, or how much some of the Greco-Persian stuff relies on Herodotus, and if you don't have that person, or if that person was lying, or if that person was wrong, how much we've built subsequent history on a fallacy. How much do you think we are clear on what we think we know when we pick up the history books and read about ancient Greece or ancient Rome? I think most people understand that up until about a hundred years ago, when with the advent of uh, math-accessible reading materials, even in the 16th and 15th century after the printing press, we didn't have the capital and the wealth to, in a mass fashion, disseminate materials. Many of them were lost. But I think we always understand, we talk about history then before the 19th century, that it's a matter of sources, and we have to be careful that, because there are often are so few sources, that we try to study the point of view of the historian. But that being said, even if, to take up your example of the Punic War, when a Polybius or when a Livy tells us something about the Punic War, we have other ways of checking it. We have archaeological remains, we have inscriptions, and we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of this description and what is the ideological background of a Livy or Polybius? And once people write books, taking all of those factors into consideration and don't agree with other people who write books, we take all those factors into consideration. We sort of get a consensus that we can pretty much understand, for example, why the Second Punic War was different than the Third. And there'll be always disagreements about interpretations of key events, but we pretty much know what the Persian Wars or Caesar's Gallic Wars were about, the dates they took place in, the main principles. And that's because we've, since the last hundred years of scholarship, we've, we've established a method of uh, inquiry, a method of scholarship, a scientific method, as it were, to evaluating literature, history, artifacts, archaeological remains. And that's why it was so important in the 1980s to stop, I think, the very destructive postmodern tendency to say there are no facts or it's all, everything is made up based on a person's particular point of view, which in turn is predicated on their own power or stature. I think that's pretty much gone out the wayside. And as long as we accept the foundations of Western scholarship and empiricism, I think we're all right. We can always find out pretty much what happened in a given period, some more than others. But there's, there's sidelines that the playing field has and that they're not just expanded forever. We understand that there's parameters in which a war takes place or a monarchy takes place that we can agree on certain facts. I think everybody can do that now. 
Well, you brought up a, a, a phrase a minute ago, and it's one that I actually, whenever I think of your name, I think of uh, this almost Tolkien-esque term, the West. What is your definition of the West, and why has this become such a controversial idea? Well, the West is a term that embodies no longer just geography. Originally, it was the West of Persia, that is, the area of Greece and Rome, and then later Northern Europe, and then later the Americas and parts of the British Empire, such as Australia or New Zealand or Canada, uh, in which certain values reoccurred. And they were constitutional government, an emphasis on individual freedom, uh, tendency to explain natural phenomena by reason rather than superstition, free markets, um, free speech. And uh, not that these were always in place in the so-called Western mind through 2,500 years since the Greeks. After all, Hitler was a product of the West. Uh, There was an Inquisition. But given the alternative, the Islamic model, the Chinese model, the New World model, the African model, the West was pretty much distinct from it. And then the second thing to remember about the West is that once you combine this economic liberality with emphasis on the individual and freedom and liberty, and then you have a stability provided by constitutional government, and a scientific method that's enhanced by reason and generated by free markets, then you create more goods and services and capital. So there's a dynamism with the West that the Crusades take place in the Middle East. Uh, Cortez is in Mexico City. Montezuma's not in Barcelona. It's not a matter of morality. It's just that Westerners have been able to exercise influence, as we see today in in the whole idea of globalization, which is really a euphemism for westernization, the application all over the world of western ideas of business, government, communications, and science. And that, because it's the most powerful and it's the most self-critical, it also puts the greatest burdens upon itself to be perfect. So a lot of people who haven't studied the system that they participate in, but they do know that it's self-critical, think that because it's not always perfect, then they don't think it's any good. They put impossible demands on it because they think that somehow we in the West must be gods rather than just mere humans. I think that's a fair rendering of what we we mean in the historical sense of the West and why it is that Westerners are so upset about our misdemeanors and they tend to think that the felonies that they see elsewhere today even are are either a result of some type of you know, colonization or imperialism, and they see see the others as victims rather than perpetrators of evil. It's this Western idea of self-reflective criticism that puts such an inordinate burden upon us to be perfect. Unless we have leaders and scholars and uh, moral and phil- philosophical people of influence that can remind us that this is a positive trait within limits, then we become almost skeptics Phoenix nihilists, and that's the danger that the West, whether it's in 4th century Athens or 17th century France or uh, 5th century Rome, they can that that need to tear everything apart and examine it, and almost self-destructive. I think that there's a chauvinism that modern people have about our ancestors in the past, and I think probably our ancestors 2,000 years from now will have about us where we just assume that the people in the past were a bunch of superstitious folks, 
probably racist, usually sexist, not very knowledgeable about things like the sciences. But you do a lot of reading of the popular material from the past. Tell me, are there any ways that the ancient folks who were our ancestors were our equals, or maybe even in some respects our betters? Well, I, look, I'm not a, a what the Romans called laudator temporis acti, just a cheap praiser of the past. But by any fair token, what our great grandparents had to do was was so far far more demanding that we did. I mean, most of the people I know would be dead if they were alive in 1850. I would have been dead at 23 with a major kidney operation. I would have been dead again at 51 with a ruptured appendix. I wouldn't have been able to live a very fruitful life. So the physical burdens that were put upon people up until just 50 years ago were incredible. So we go back and we say that a family with 10 coming across the the plains in a covered wagon and trying to homestead land and finding water that wouldn't make them sick or food that they could depend on each day. And then we we don't, we just ignore the physical demands and drudgery that they had to put up with. And we say, well, you know what? They were not sensitive. They were not sensitive to people of color. They were not sensitive to Native Americans. They were not sensitive to the environment. They threw bottles out the window. Yet, Maybe true, but any of us who would go back into that physical environment would probably fail because we've created almost a very pampered populace who uses the standards of the present to condemn those of the past without giving them credit for undergoing great misery and sacrifice to create the foundations and the physical infrastructure that we, of course, enjoy. So... We can talk all about this lake we didn't need or this dam we didn't need or this highway, was, but we use it today, and we, we don't blow them up. So we use all of the contributions and the achievements and the investments of the past. We take it for granted in our daily life. It's, it's so pleasurable. But then we also are sort of ingrates say, well, they shouldn't have done this. But we don't just say they shouldn't have done this, therefore we won't use it. People in San Francisco are always talking about Hetch Hetchy Reservoir is a national tragedy that they, they flooded this beautiful valley, but they don't say it's a national tragedy, let's tear down the dam and let's not have any fresh water in San Francisco. And that's the problem with modern man, water, modern post-Western man, that he has this strange attitude that he's going to... We saw this with Senator Obama the other day saying that he might like to bankrupt the coal industry. And, and make it so expensive to build a coal plant, which we have the world's largest reserves, that we'd have to go solar and win. But that would, at least for the temporary period, would say to Americans, okay, let's just use electricity five hours a day. If I'm living in Chicago. I'm the Obama family. I'm going to tell the children, do not turn on television because it's not windy today or we don't have enough uh, sunlight today. We want to be good citizens and not burn coal. But nobody does that. They want it both ways or three ways or four ways. And that's my greatest sense of disappointment in the present generation. You know, some people have chided me um, because my approach with this program that I do is sometimes to try to take modern people back to the emotions of people from earlier times. And I'll have people say to me that 
the ideas of things like romantic love, or one of the things I put out there was I was talking about the battles that the Romans lost against Hannibal and discussing the possibility that some of the Roman survivors may have had what we call today post-traumatic stress disorder. And someone said, oh, come on, people back then didn't have those kind of modern-day sorts of things. Um, how much do we turn the ancient people into modern people when I bring up concepts like romantic love? And how much did those people back then actually share some of those modern values or, in the case of the post-traumatic stress disorder, the modern phobias and problems we would associate with things like horrible combat today? Well, this is an age-old issue is that, on the one hand, people are people are people across time and space, and they have the same desires and impulses and appetites as they always have. They tend to be greedy. They tend to want to have status and honor. They react to certain stimuli, and that does, that's unchanged. And then the, the other variable is culture, that each culture is distinct and can enhance and detract each of those innately human. And so the historian looks at a culture in the past and says, well, did a man and a woman actually have romantic love in ancient Greece when marriages were arranged or when the physical environment was so harsh that they really couldn't experiment with romance? And the answer is, Maybe not as much as now, but it happened. Same thing with military affairs, that somebody fighting on a Greek battlefield would know that afterwards his society did not have the capital to offer him a psychiatrist. And if they did have the capital to offer him a psychiatrist, and he did say that he suffered from stress, which he probably did, then they wouldn't have done much about it. They couldn't have. But that's a little different than saying they didn't suffer the same trauma that we do. We know that the Greeks manifested it in a different way. They talked about the carries, supernatural beings that flew down and picked up hoplites and flew off, flew them off the battlefield to take them down to Hades. Or they talked about large uh, hoplite soldiers they saw, sort of manifestations that we in modern scientific parlance would probably say were imaginations or nightmares. But I, I don't think people change that much even though they are in quite, it's no doubt that their culture expresses these human constants in very different ways. One of the things I always thought you did a great job of bringing to the table was your farming background. And several of the books that I've read from you talk about the yeoman farmer and how this was a basis for a lot of the things you just associated a few questions ago with the West, the agrarian farmer, and how they formed sort of the central axis of a lot of these ancient societies. Um, it occurs to me that in the past hundred years, if you want to take the long view of the United States, the yeoman farmer class, if you will, has shrunk quite a bit. What do you see as, if any, the long-term ramifications to the U.S. system of losing some of this yeoman farmer class? Well, I try to discuss that at length in two modern books, The Fields Without Dreams and Letters from American Farmer, and then again in an ancient book called The Other Greeks. And when the, our founding fathers created this nation, they, they assumed that nine out of ten people were yeoman farmers. By 1850, it was one out of two, and then after the Industrial Revolution got going, by 1920, it was one in four, one in five, and today, uh, it's one in a hundred. And I remember two things are happening. One, we have more food than ever as fewer people participate in farming due to organophosphates and mechanization and scientific expertise, genetic in some cases today. So that we're far more productive, but, and this is the key but, 
the experience of having to test yourself against nature and bring culture to the wild or understanding that there's a tragic sequence of events that happens in life. You can lose a crop right before a rain to, for no fault of your own, or you can see um, a virus destroy a whole grape crop without any explication. That, that is, was traditionally very valuable, as was a person living on his own land, pumping his own water, dealing with his own sewage, dealing with his own power, dealing with his own food. That, that created, a, um, going back to Greek times, a self-reliant, independent, um, confident citizen. And the more that we put people in suburbs and the more that we put them interconnected on central state systems and dependent upon those systems, and the further they were removed from where their food came from or the sight of blood or sweat and physical ordeal or the idea that things could be not fair and just happen, um, then the more we, in the modern age, we became, I think, as the individuals, much more unhappy, much more vul- sense of vulnerability, much more dependent on other people, much more critical of things, much more demanding that we have a sort of a perfection in our lives. And if we don't have instant perfection, then somebody must be blamed for it. Whereas when we were human farmers, people realized there were certain limitations on the human experience that nature imposed. Last question, and this is a silly one, you'll have to indulge me, but none of my military history friends who all read you way back in the Western way of war days would forgive me if I didn't ask you a silly question like this. Assuming it's the equivalent of a football game in a Las Vegas point spread, who do you take, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, and what do you think the point spread is? Well, I would probably disagree with a lot of uh, historians. I think that although the landscape that Alexander... Uh, operated on was far greater and far more vast, and the physical ordeal was far greater um, in his conquest of uh, um, the rise of the third and the destruction of the Persian Empire. He didn't really found anything uh, afterwards. It was divided up by his lieutenants, and then it was slowly eroded into sort of uh, pseudo-Greek monarchies that themselves were, were absorbed by the Romans later. But Caesar was very different. He had far fewer, I think, uh, resources. He had a lot more civil um, unrest back at Rome that he had to deal with, and he was trying to create uh, provinces that were stable and institutions and integration, intermarriage, all sorts of things that would later become places like France and, and Belgium and parts of Spain. So I think in some ways that they're not the, the achievements of Caesar the general were not as spectacular, but they were more realistic, hard, um, rational, and they lasted longer. And so I think that he was a he had a I, I guess I would say that he had a better mind than Alexander did. Alexander was far more romantic and prone to impulse, and uh, he was a person of the day, where Caesar had a mind of the century. I would, I would go with Caesar. My thanks to Victor Davis Hanson for coming on the program today. If you would like to check out some of his conservative political writings and his website, go to victorhanson.com. That's H-A-N-S-O-N. Also, we may yet have another interview program after this one. We take them as we can get them with the great ones. And following that, probably back to our normal schedule, maybe a blitz show and then a full-length show after that. In any case, just wanted to let you know what's coming up and to say... 
Thank you, everyone, for your continued support. We appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for posting comments about the show on iTunes. They help to get the program noticed. And if you'd like to help spread the word about hardcore history, vote for the show on podcastalley.com.